Uh, so, Lord, thank you. Uh, thank you that you've saved us, Lord. Jesus, we thank you for your, your purpose, your mission of saving your people from their sins. Jesus, we thank you for saving us. And, Lord, if there's anyone here that has not accepted you, if there's anyone here who has not humbled themselves and come before you, Lord, we pray that today would be that day of salvation, Lord. That each of us would continue to lower our pride, lower our ego and what we think and what we know. And Lord, may we just humble ourselves and cry out to you this morning. Lord, we just pray for the church family, uh, those going through rough seasons, difficult seasons. Pray that you'd meet them and encourage them, Lord. I thank you for answering our prayers and uh, people coming out of the hospital, people being healed, Lord. We thank you so much for that. We thank you for those who are in seasons of rejoicing, Lord, with uh, babies being born and marriages, Lord, engagements. We just thank you, uh, Lord, for the, the good and the bad, Lord. Holy Spirit, we come to you now. We ask you to fill us afresh and anew, uh, soften our hearts, open our eyes to see what you have for us this morning. Uh, we love you. We thank you. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Many of us probably have some type of childhood memories. Uh, maybe they're good childhood memories, perhaps they're bad childhood memories. Unless you've had plenty of concussions, you have some childhood memories, right? And uh, here at the end of Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 through chapter 2, we see the early life of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of spiritual aspects to it, a lot of supernatural aspects to it. But this morning, I hope to just look at just... The, the natural, a lot of the people, a lot of the characters, their lives, what's going on. I always think of Joseph. At what point did Joseph begin asking Jesus for advice, right? Maybe he was three, four years old. Hey, Jesus, what do you think about this, right? You are the son of God. What do you think about this? And marriage, how's my parenting? Am I doing okay, right? At what point did they begin speaking to the son of God, all right, in that type of way? We'll look at the different characters. We'll look at Mary. We'll look at Joseph. We'll look at King Herod, the wise men. Uh, we'll look at the Sadducees, the Pharisees. Right? So many people around the birth of Jesus Christ. But verse 18, we'll begin reading. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. 
Last week we looked at the genealogy of Jesus Christ and we're still looking at the person of the king. Who is Jesus? What's his background? What was his early life like? And here we're introduced to his parents. We're introduced to his mother Mary and his father God, his stepfather Joseph. And in the beginning Mary was still betrothed to Joseph. And within this culture you would have arranged marriages. Arranged marriages, and these arranged marriages would usually go through three steps. First would be the engagement. And parents would often engage their children to be married, sometimes at three and four years old. You'd have an engaged couple in right, elementary school, right? And they'd be engaged to one another. Then one year before they were to be married, they would begin the season of being betrothed to one another. They would have a legally binding engagement. Now at this point, they would be referring to one another as husband and wife. They would care for one another. They would not yet live with one another. And they would not yet have sexual intimacy. But yet they had many of the responsibilities and legalities of being married. If the groom would die during the season, the bride would be considered a widowed virgin. Finally, the marriage... A year after the season of being betrothed to one another, and after the wedding day, the couple would finally be married and be able to enjoy sexual intimacy. And the difficulty here for Mary and for Joseph is that while they were still in the season of being betrothed to one another, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And this would be extremely difficult on Mary. This would be hard for Joseph as well. We know that sex before marriage is sin, but in this culture, it was still heavily looked down upon to be pregnant before wedlock. And how many of us honestly would believe Mary's story? If there was an engaged couple here and the girl begins to show, how many of us would believe them if they turned to us and said, it's of the Holy Spirit, right? Being honest here. For some of us, a newlywed couple, if they say, oh, we had, we're pregnant, we had a honeymoon baby, how many of you here start thinking, is it really a honeymoon baby, right? And for Mary and Joseph, it would be even more difficult for them in the season and culture that they were living in. Adam Clark says, her situation was the most distressing and humiliating that can be conceived. Nothing but the fullest consciousness of her own integrity and the strongest confidence in God could have supported her in such trying circumstances where her reputation, her honor, and even her own life was at stake. Even today, there are some unwilling to believe in the virgin birth. They try to pick and choose what parts of the Bible they believe and they can wrap their minds around And the parts they can't, they just sort of throw out. However, without the virgin birth, then Jesus would need a Savior in his own right. Because he would be born into sin. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 16, we're given 39 begots. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, so on and so forth and so on and so forth. But when you come to verse 16, it tells us, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Joseph is not credited with begetting or begotting. I don't know what's the right terminology there, right? Jesus. 
We see that he's the husband of Mary, but Mary is the one who gives birth to Jesus Christ, and God truly is his father. This is fulfilling, like we read earlier, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We know that Jesus had to live on the rough reputation of his mother even into his adulthood. If you're quick, you could turn to John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, verse 19 through 41, we'll just read through through two scriptures. We're not going to read all 22 verses there. But in John chapter 8, we see the reputation that Mary had and the reputation that Jesus had. There in John chapter 8, verse 19, they're questioning Jesus. These are the Pharisees. And they said to him, where is your father? Mocking him, saying, we don't know who his father was. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. The Pharisees doubled down on this statement in verse 41. They, he says, you do the deeds of your father. And then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father that is God. So again, this was Jesus' reputation as an adult. Imagine what life was like for young Mary being 15, 16, 17, in her late teens, having to go through this terrible reputation. Luke gives us a little bit more insight on this incredible conception and birth in Luke chapter 1. He gives us more insight, although for many of us, it'll still leave us with questions. There's still a great measure of faith to believe in the virgin birth and in the virgin conception. But here in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, it says, And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Highest will overshadow you. Therefore... Also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
Again, Mary was an incredible young woman, blessed among women. Here we see her willing to take in this difficult task, this great privilege, but it's going to come at a great cost. And her answer is, Lord, I'm your slave. Whatever you say, whatever you will, I'm willing to do. And again, people, they have difficulty with the supernatural aspects in the Bible. But our God is a supernatural God. The creation of the world in six days was supernatural. The conception of Jesus was supernatural. The rapture of the church will be supernatural. And heaven and all of eternity will be supernatural. If Abraham at 100 years old and Sarah at 90 years old were able to get pregnant, if Zacharias labeling himself an old man in Luke chapter 1 and Elizabeth his wife who he tells the angel is well-stricken in years. Husbands, don't refer to your wives as well-stricken in years, right? If Zacharias and Elizabeth, well-stricken in years, were able to get pregnant, then it seems that with God, nothing will be impossible. That word there is literally, no word of God shall be powerless. All that God says is going to happen. Every word that God says has power behind it. Spurgeon says there was no other way of his being born. For had he been born of a sinful father, how should he have possessed a sinful nature? He is born of a woman that he might be human, but not by man that he might not be sinful. Back to verse 19. We look a little bit more in depth here at Joseph. And Joseph might be one of the most underrated characters Not only in the Gospels, but in all of Scripture. Verse 19 tells us, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Again, during this betrothal period, the couple was still referred to as husband and wife. And imagine the hurt and the heartbreak here for Joseph. Talk about being caught off guard. I don't know if you've ever gotten difficult news and the air is just knocked out of you. You can barely breathe. Talk about being sucker punched in the stomach. This woman, Mary, who Gabriel the angel called highly favored. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. If heaven held Mary in such high esteem and holiness, how high of an esteem and holiness do you think Joseph looked at Mary? Think of the holiest young woman that you know of, the holiest girl that you know. And Mary being pregnant before marriage would have never crossed the mind of Joseph. And if Joseph wasn't the father, science tells us Mary cheated on him, right? Mary was unfaithful to him. And how many of you men who are engaged here tonight, right, this morning, this afternoon, would believe your fiancé's story, right? Honey, I know we're engaged. I know we have the wedding day, but I'm pregnant. But don't worry, it's of the Holy Spirit, right? How many of you men would really believe this? And even through all the heartbreak, through all the emotion, through all the feeling of being betrayed, Joseph was still a just man. And our character truly comes to the surface when we feel as if we have been wronged. 
How many of us, when, we've, when we feel like we've been wronged, there's nothing to hold us back? It's let everything out, let all the revenge, let all the dirty laundry out there. However, Joseph, feeling as if he'd been wronged, still desires to not make her a public example. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 23 through 24, the law dictates that if a woman who's a virgin and is betrothed to a husband has sex with another man, that they're to bring both of them out to the gate of that city and stone both of them to death with stones. Tradition says that they would do this and they would have the woman stand in a pile of dung so that once she's knocked unconscious, she'd be face first in the pile of manure, showing as a sign and a warning to anyone who would have sex before marriage. And Joseph was hurt, but he was still a righteous man. Joseph was hurt, but he was still upright and virtuous. He wanted to keep God's laws. He wanted to be fair, and he wanted to be just. But this was not the end that Joseph wanted for Mary. He knew he couldn't marry her, but he was still compassionate. He wanted to put her away privately. A small divorce proceeding with two or three witnesses trying to put her away quietly. Truly here displaying the heart of God. Spurgeon says, when we have to do a severe thing, let us choose to do so in the tenderest manner. Maybe we shall not have to do it at all. And here we see the wisdom in not dealing with the situation the moment we get the difficult news. Joseph, he could have gone crazy, right? The Spanish say, "Acha machete, right? Right away you hear the news and you just pull out the machete and you start going crazy. Joseph, he's quiet and he's dealing with this between him and the Lord. We can think of Ephesians chapter 4, 15 that tells us speaking the truth in love. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 tells us hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. You see, biblically, we're not to cover up sin as in to hide it or hide other people's sin. We are to bring it before the Lord and handle things in a biblical manner. But once they've been handled in a biblical manner, if we are truly seeking love, we cover it because it's been covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't bring it up again. That marriage, that person that continually brings up someone's past and someone's dirty laundry, they are stirring up strife. But Proverbs 17 verse 9 tells us, He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. Again, a lot of wisdom here for friendships and for marriages. If you're continuing bringing up the past of a husband or a wife that's sought your forgiveness, that has the forgiveness of the Lord, you are, re you are separating your friendship. But if you're covering that transgression, you are seeking love. After all, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 tells us that love suffers long. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Finally, 1 Peter 4 verse 8 tells us, Above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. I pray that each of us continue to deal with the sins of others as we would want them to deal with our sins. Not making billboards about it, right? 
Not putting it out on social media, not telling it at every family gathering, every Christmas, putting out someone's dirty laundry out there. May we deal with other sins as we would want them to deal with our sins. And also consider how God deals with us and our sins. Does God put out every single one of our sins out there publicly? Every time we sin, every time we mess up, every crazy and terrible thought that passes our mind, does God put it out there? How graciously he deals with us. How much patience, how much mercy, how God desires to deal with us privately. It's only after a long season of rebellion that then God deals with us publicly out in the open because he loves us too much. Back to Matthew chapter 1 verse 20. Tells us while he thought about these things. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Perhaps Joseph is there on his bed, tossing and turning, Thinking about his life, how is he going to go on, what's going to happen, what's going to happen to him, what's going to happen to the marriage, the down payment on the venue, right? What's going to happen to Mary, what's going to happen to the baby, finally falls asleep, and then an angel appears to him. The angel appears to him and tells him four things. The baby is indeed of the Holy Spirit. The baby is going to be a boy. The name of the baby is going to be Jesus. And the purpose for this baby born is to save his people from their sins. Jesus was a very common name in this time period. It's like in our church today saying, Jose, and just screaming it out and seeing how many heads turn, right? Or saying George and seeing how many people turn around. It was a very common name. Jesus means salvation of Jehovah, or you turn those words around, Jehovah the Savior. And the purpose of Jesus coming to this earth is to save his people from their sins. That's the purpose of Jesus Christ. It's not to give us a better life or to give us our best life now. It's to save us from our sins. David Guzik says, first he saves us from the penalty of our sins. Then he frees us from the power of sin. And finally, he frees us from the presence of sin. The angel let Joseph know the purpose of Jehovah the Savior is not to save or liberate his people from a terrible government such as the Roman Empire, but his purpose is to save his people from their worst enemy, their own sins. And Jesus was more than willing to identify with sinners. Last week we saw that all through his genealogy, he's identifying with murderers, with prostitutes, with incest, with the worst of the worst. Jesus was willing to identify with sinners that probably most of us wouldn't be willing to identify with. This is to show how much he is willing to save sinners. This is his purpose, and it's a warning to us. If Jesus is more willing to identify with sinners than we are, we're in a dangerous place. And if we are not willing to humble ourselves and take ownership of the truth that we are sinners, the terrible news for you is that Jesus cannot save you. Jesus, he can only save sinners. If we're coming to him saying, I'm not a sinner, I'm not a sinner, I'm not that bad, he cannot save you. But if we're willing to humble ourselves and cry out to him, then his purpose can happen in your life. Verse 22 
So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. We mentioned this earlier in Isaiah 7, verse 14. And this phrase, that it might be fulfilled, we're going to see appear over and over again throughout the book of Matthew. Now, what was Jesus' name? What did they call Jesus? Jesus. The 9 a.m. knew better than you guys, right? They called Jesus Jesus. They didn't call him Emmanuel. However, Emmanuel speaks of his deity, that Jesus is God. It also speaks of his identity and his nearness to mankind. He is God with us. You see, we are not good enough to be with God. We are not special enough to be with God. We will never be holy enough to come to God. But Jesus already has come and is God with us. If ever we go through those moments of shame, we go through those moments of fear and guilt, those moments when the devil puts questions in your head saying, how dare you try to come near to God, be reminded. Jesus has already come and he is God with us. He's given us the ability to be near to him. He's given us the ability and the payment and the power to be adopted into his own family. Where now we don't have to just cry out to him as God, but we can cry out to him as Abba, Father. I don't know if you've ever been at a conference, at a meeting, at a gathering where there's someone you really wanted to talk to, but you just had too much pena, right? You had too much shame, you had too much fear, and then out of nowhere they came and they grabbed you, right? They started talking to you. They showed interest in you. They spent time. They just sat down talking with you. And the joy, the gladness, the woof, thank God, right? That comes to us. And Jesus Christ has done this and then some for each and every one of us. He walked across eternity, across a divide of our sin and sinful nature. And he sat down and said, hey, you want to be family? Hey, do you want to be saved? This is what Jesus has done for us. Spurgeon says, Then if Jesus Christ be God with us, let us come to God without any question or hesitancy. Whoever you may be, you need no priest, no intercessor to introduce you to God. For God has introduced himself to you. Again, he's come to us. He's introduced himself. Hey, my name is Jesus Christ. We talked about it. It's not his last name, right? But he's already introduced himself to us. He wants to have that friendship and relationship with us. And from here on out, whenever the devil puts those lies in your mind, remind the devil and remind yourself, he is God with us. He's already identified with me. Verse 24, then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, And he called his name Jesus. How long did Joseph wait to obey God? Was it the first snooze, right? Was it the fifth alarm on his iPhone and then he woke up and then he pleased God? Was it a a week later, a month later? No. The moment he's aroused from his sleep, he trusts and obeys God immediately. We're going to see this over and over again through chapter 1 and 2. And I pray for all the men here, may we grow in the speed of our trust and obedience to God. He had a dream, and that's it. 
Right away, he trusts God. He obeys God. He takes Mary to be his wife. He trusts the story. And he goes through all the agony, all the shame, all the betrayal that both of them will go through as they go through this journey. He did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. This tells us that after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary continued with a normal marriage. They had sex, they had intimacy, and they also had more children. If you would, we could turn quickly to Mark chapter 6, verse 3. And Mark chapter 6, verse 3, even here what we're reading at the end of Matthew chapter 1, verse 25, it reveals to us that there's no biblical standing for the perpetual virginity of Mary that the Catholic Church teaches. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, they're here and they're mocking Jesus. The city of Nazareth wants nothing to do with him. They're not willing to accept him for who he is as the Messiah. So then in verse 3, they say, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. So scripture reveals to us that Jesus was one of at least seven children. Maybe you're here and you have difficult memories of so many kids in your home. Hey, Jesus can identify with you. Maybe you have a terrible childhood and you were the oldest one having to care for your six siblings. Jesus can identify with you. Maybe you had a rough childhood and all of your siblings were worse than you are. Jesus can identify with you, right? All of Jesus truly was the third parent in that household, right? Taking care of the other siblings. Perhaps your family has disowned you and your brothers and sisters no longer want to eat with you. Hey, Jesus, he can identify with you. Maybe your hometown where you grew up, your friends, your family want nothing to do with you. They don't accept you for who you are. Jesus, he can identify with you. We go to Matthew chapter 2 now. We see another group of people coming on the scene here. Verse 1, Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, he's already born. He's born in Bethlehem of Judea. In the days of Herod the king, behold... Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. This city of Bethlehem was a very small town, about six miles away from Jerusalem. And in the days of Herod the king. It's interesting how even today, if we want to talk about a time period that was really great, For a time period that was really bad, we can talk about the president. Hey, remember when so-and-so was president, right? Remember when so-and-so was king? So here it says the days of Herod the king, also known as Herod the Great. One commentator speaking of Herod the king, he says that he was a wealthy, politically gifted, intensely loyal. He was an excellent administrator and clever enough to remain in the good graces of successive Roman emperors. His famine relief was superb, and his building projects, he was a great architect, included the temple and began in 20 B.C. They were admired even by his enemies, but he loved power. 
inflicted incredible heavy taxes on the Jewish people, and resented the fact that many Jews considered him a usurper. In his last days, suffering an illness that compounded to his paranoia, he turned to cruelty and fits of rage and jealousy, killing many of his close associates. Herod was about four feet eight inches tall, trusted no one, and was a ruthless man. You could say that Napoleon Bonaparte had a Herod complex, right? Augustus Caesar, the Roman emperor at the time, who had a relationship with King Herod, said bitterly that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's own son. You see, he, he clung to being kosher, the Jewish faith, so he would have no pork, but he had no problem killing off any son or wife or father-in-law that he was afraid that would want to take his throne. And this man, with all of this fear, all of this paranoia, and with this strange complex, is sitting there in the middle of Jerusalem, there on his throne, when all of a sudden this entourage of wise men come into the city, causing a stir. Now, for many of us in our culture, we believe that there are three wise men. How many of you have a nativity at home with three wise men, right? You just put it away, put it away in your closet. Many of us. But you don't see three wise men in the Bible, does that mean you got to throw out the nativity scene, right? Does that mean you go to your neighbor's house and you grab the three wise men and you throw them away? Not at all, right? Not at all. Just accept it, love it. Love covers a multitude of sins, right? Remember, you could buy more nativity scenes, put more wise men together, right, if you want. We don't know how many there were. But in this time period, there's no doubt that they probably traveled in a large entourage because these roads were usually paved with robbers and people looking for problems. These men were also men of wealth, so no doubt they probably had hired protection and security with them to the point that they caused a stir in the capital city of Israel. And they asked Herod, who Caesar called him king of the Jews, they come to him and they say, hey, where is he who has been born? Not prince of the Jews, not one day, no. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. These wise men from the east, they've come to Jerusalem. We don't know exactly where they're from, but most scholars estimate it's anywhere from between 400 to 700 miles. They're traveling on their way to Jerusalem. A king has been born, so he has to be in the capital city there in Israel. So that's why they come there. These wise men, they're also known as magi. Some would even call them magicians. They were not known for their card tricks or illusions or pulling bunnies out of hats. But these magicians were known for their study of astrology and science. You could think of in Egypt, the magicians there in Pharaoh's court. You could think of in the times of Babylon, how Nebuchadnezzar is angry and he's going to kill all of the wise men, all of the magi. And Daniel stands up and says, hey, don't put them all to death. And many of these men would study science and the stars looking for gods and for prophecy and for the future. However, Daniel, many scholars believe, started a group of magi that believed in the one true God. And perhaps they were following the prophecies of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, it says, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression to make an end of sins, to make, to make reconciliation for iniquity, 
and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from going forth to the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be 70 weeks, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So perhaps these men, after Daniel, continue to believe this prophecy, following the stars, waiting for the Messiah, and now the star and the sign appears. In Numbers 24, verse 17, we see one of the first magi ever, a prophet by the name of Balaam, pagan prophet. However, in Numbers 24, verse 17, he prophesies over Israel and says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. So perhaps these wise men have been giving their whole lives to study these prophecies, waiting for the star appear. Now, we really don't know what the star was. Some think that it's all the planets aligning perfectly in 4 BC. Others think that it's a comet, a shooting star, something that it's a star itself. I just believe it's a supernatural thing that happened. Others believe it's the Shekinah glory of God coming here onto earth. And we'll see how in a moment it can only be described as something supernatural. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. We know King Herod, his atrocities, the people he's killed, the people he's murdered. So when his complex is shaken, when his protection is stirred, not only is he troubled, but all of Jerusalem with him. So then he gathers all the chief priests and scribes of the people together. And he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel? Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. So he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. We have three groups of people. We have the wise men. We have King Herod, and we have the scribes and the rulers. And we've mentioned this as we've gone through this season of Christmas, I believe at the worship night, that many people have three different reactions when we hear about Jesus the King. We either go out and adore Him, we're apathetic towards Him, or we're appalled at Him. Adore, apathetic, or appalled. You see, when the wise men heard that the King has finally come, They've been awaiting his arrival. They've been researching. They've been seeking. And once that star appears, they are willing to pay a price to leave everything behind, abandon what is home, and go out to adore him. Because they believe and they know that the king is worthy of their worship. The wise men do all that they can to seek him and worship him and adore him. 
King Herod, when he hears about this king being born, he's appalled. Another king greater than himself? Someone else that the throne belongs to? Someone else that's more important than he is? He's unwilling to bow the knee and worship the true king of kings and lord of lords. So he does all that he can to destroy him. And that's what happens to many people. They are appalled that Jesus would demand of them their service and worship. That they can either love God or love anything else. There's nothing else. You can either love him and serve him or that's it. If we serve anything else, he is not the chief Lord of Lord in our lives. And we get annoyed at that. Sometimes there are people that they begin coming to church because they're appalled that their spouse loves Jesus more than them. Or their children love Jesus more than them. Finally, you have the chief priests and scribes. And they are just apathetic at the king and his arrival. Nothing changes in their lives. They feel no need to go and see him. He's six miles away. They have no need. They feel no need to see him, to investigate him, or even worship him. They can tell you. They can point to you where he's at. They can show you where he is in scripture. But their lives are good. Their lives are comfortable. Why would they change anything at all in their lives? They do all they can to ignore the King of kings and Lord of lords. They're just apathetic towards him. And I encourage you to ask the Lord, Lord, give me eyes to see who I am this morning, this afternoon. Am I in a season of just adoring Jesus Christ, worshiping him? Am I in the season where I'm just appalled at what he's asking me to do, at who he is? Or am I just apathetic, just going through the motions? Yeah, I could tell you about Jesus, but I'm unwilling to go and seek him and worship him. King Herod in verse 9, he tell, in verse 7 and 8, he tells him, hey, he's Bethlehem. Hey, please tell me where he's at so I can come and worship him. We'll see that that's a lie later on. Verse 9, when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. So it seems as if the star appears once again. And now the star came and stood over where the young child was. If it was an actual star, the heat of the star would cause the home to just disintegrate where the child was, right? But the star, the star comes and stands before him. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Some of our nativities, we have the wise men right there bundled up with the shepherds, Joseph and Mary. We try to make it balanced, right? Even shepherds, even magi. But here we see that it, months have transpired. Though They're no longer in a cave or in the barn or in the alleyway. They come to a home and only the child and Mary are present here. Jesus is six months old, a year old, a year and a half old. Later on, the two-year mark that King Herod comes down against, we know Jesus is anywhere from six months to two years old. And they come into the house and they see this young child with Mary, his mother. And if this entourage was big enough to cause a stir in the capital city of Jerusalem, if this entourage was big enough to gain a seat and a, be able to question the king of Israel... What did this entourage look like in the tiny city of Bethlehem? 
Imagine if you lived out in the sticks, right? Your neighbor's like five acres away from you. And then all of a sudden you see black SUV after black SUV after black SUV, black limo, helicopter, secret servicemen, guys talking into their sleeves. What is going on here? You're able to head over to your neighbor's house and you look in the window and there's kings, there's dignitaries, and they're falling down and worshiping him. You notice they don't worship Mary the mother. They fall down and begin to worship this toddler. God would have it fit that Joseph's not there at the house. We don't know if he's out working or getting groceries, running errands. We don't know where Joseph is at this moment. But God would have it fit that these men would have no question that God is the father of this child. And again, just the real life. What did this look like? Imagine a six-year-old being given gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? A six-month-old. A one-year-old, a year-and-a-half-year-old. I was talking with a, a parent of a few toddlers, right? Was, was he playing with the gold? Was he messing with the frankincense and the myrrh? Like, no, he's probably playing with the boxes on the side, right? That's probably what he was doing, what most of our kids were doing. We don't know how much gold was given or how much frankincense or how much myrrh. Gold, people, they say it's not in Scripture, but it's interesting that gold represents kings and kingdoms. Frankincense represents the priest and the priesthood. And myrrh speaks of his burial, of his death. Imagine having your child's one-year birthday and someone, you give, and someone giving you a small coffin. Right? That, that's what the wise men are doing here. And the purpose of Jesus coming into this earth was to save us from our sins. He came into this life with the purpose to die and then resurrect my nephew told me this great joke. He said, hey, what did the, two wise, what did the third wise men say after the first two gave, God, gave Jesus gold and frankincense? He said, but wait, there's myrrh. <laughs> verse 2, after all of this chaos, after all of this has happened within the home, verse 12, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. God appears to these wise men. They take another route back home. Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Again, God, he speaks to Mary first to warn her and let her know and give her the option here about Jesus being born of Mary. But from there on out, God speaks to Joseph over and over and over again. And our God, he's a supernatural God, but we see him following the line of family and authority and responsibility that he's created within Scripture. He constantly speaks to the head of the home, Joseph. He tells Joseph, arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. We don't see Mary saying, the angel always talks to me first. What are you, what are you talking about, right? I got to wait till Gabriel tells me where we're going before we go anywhere, Joseph. We don't see her saying, Egypt, do you even know how to get to Egypt, Right? Do you have directions to Egypt? We came out of Egypt. We're not going back to Egypt. 
We see this within the family and how God continues to protect family as he has instituted it. The husband, yeah, he's the authority, but he has the responsibility and the weight to be able to stand before the Lord. We are not sure how much gold, frankincense, and myrrh was given to the young king and his family, but it was enough to take care of the family during their stay in Egypt. And again, how Jesus, anybody can relate to him. He can relate to anyone. He's there. If you're a refugee, you'd have to run from your, for your life from a country. Jesus has been there. He's had to flee as a young child to another country in order to protect his life. Once again here, we see how quick Joseph is to obey the Lord and his commandments. Once again, that same night, the moment he wakes up, he takes Mary, he takes the child, and they head over to Egypt. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, wasn't really deceived, he was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were born in Bethlehem, and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah. It's another word for Bethlehem. Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Again, just an atrocity happening here. And Bethlehem, it was a very small city at that time. Scholars estimate Bethlehem and its surrounding districts, it would put somewhere between 12 to 50 toddlers being put to death by King Herod. And throughout Scripture, whether it's Pharaoh, whether it's Herod, whether it's the the infant side today, so many babies being put to death, it's always fueled by just evil and demonic powers that be. However, we're going to see in a moment, no one gets away with this death and murder unless they confess and get right with the Lord. Verse 19, now when Herod was dead, see, Herod died shortly thereafter. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Herod did not get away with all this evil and all this sin and all this death that he committed. Just read Josephus, the historian. You see, at the end of King Herod's life, he was struck with a disease. Many believe a venereal disease. The disease then seized upon his whole body and distracted it by various torments. For he had a slow fever and the itching of the skin on his whole body was insupportable. He suffered also from continuous pains in his colon and there were swellings on his feet like those of a person suffering from dropsy. While his abdomen was inflamed and his privy member so putrefied as to produce worms. Besides this, he could only breathe in an upright posture and then only with difficulty. He had convulsions in all his limbs so that the diviner said that his diseases were a punishment. His breath stank so bad that the different men with him could only be with him an hour before they were nauseous and had to switch shifts. 
Again, God, he exacts his true vengeance on every single person. And I don't think anybody here wants worms in their privy members, right? And how God deals with King Herod and all of his evil. Verse 22, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Archelaus was as crazy and as violent as his father. However, he wasn't as competent or smooth politically or as incredible of an architect to the point that the Jews began pleading with the Roman government and the Roman government would later pull him out of his seat of power and have him sent into exile and replaced in AD 60, in 86 by a Pontius Pilate. You see... Joseph was concerned, but he waited until he was warned by God in a dream. And just using wisdom, he went to this region of Galilee. He probably desired to have King Jesus in Jerusalem to be taught by the best of the best. But God would have it fit for him to go to this small fishing village and be in this area of Nazareth near the Galilee. And again, how great our God is once again fulfilling that which was spoken by the prophets. So this morning, what should we gather from this Bible study? I think first and foremost for all the men here, may we desire to be like Joseph, a man of integrity, a man of righteousness, but also a man of kindness and grace and mercy. A man that seeks to cover a multitude of sin. A man that seeks to honor God, but also be loving and kind and merciful to mankind as well. May we search our own hearts. Are we those who are seeking to adore Jesus Christ? Are we are those that at this point we're just apathetic with Him? With Bible study, with church, we just come in and out of church and nothing really changes within our lives? Or are we those who are appalled? We can't believe what he's asking us to do, what he's asking our spouse to do, our kids to do. And we're just seeking all that we can do to destroy him within our lives and within our family. Again, we just cry out to the Lord and know that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's come to save his people from their sins. So, hey, let's pray. Worship team, if you can come up. Pastors, if you can come up as well. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, just thank you for the reminder that, Jesus, you are God with us. How you stepped through time, Lord, you stepped over that gulf of our sin and the wages of our sin, all that we deserve, and you've introduced yourself to us, Lord. How you want to save us, how you love us, how you care for us. How you want to restore all that the locusts have eaten in our lives, God. And I just pray that each of us, we would, Lord, accept you. We would accept the truth of your word. By faith, we would say that you are the Son of God. That you have died and resurrected, paying the wages of my sin, Lord. Lord, forgive us so often when, Lord, I'm just apathetic, just going in and out of church. Lord, help us to be reminded at the wonder of your life, at the wonder of Scripture, at just 
the supernatural God that we serve and that loves us and that has adopted us. Lord, just thank you so much for this morning. May you just do that work within us, Lord. Go before us now, God. Pray that you'd bless us now, bless lunch, bless the cafe, bless our time of fellowship, Lord. Help us to enjoy one another and just this fellowship that you've brought together. We love you and we thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.